If you have your Bibles, I want you to join me in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We're going to pick up at verse 21 where, where Eric left off uh, two weeks ago. And I've, I've titled this sermon, Desperate Times, Desperate Measures. Desperate Times, Desperate Measures. And I have to say occasionally when I'm teaching, I stand here and I'm not sure what the Lord wants to do with what he's about to say through me to you. I'm not sure. I know the message is clear, but I'm not sure what he's going to say to you. And so you've heard this story before. You've heard Carrie read it to you just a few minutes ago, but I want you to approach this as if this is you in the story. This is you. The narrative is about you. So I want to start off by asking you this question. Have you, have you ever felt beaten down, overwhelmed, in despair, in need of a miracle, desperate? Have you ever reached a point in your life where, where you knew that this is it, man, I'm, I'm out of options? If you've never been there, I promise you, just keep living. Just keep living. Because those times are coming. And I'd even say this, that there are people that are all around us right now, maybe even sitting in this room, that are feeling hopelessly desperate about something that's going on in their life. And if God doesn't come through, you're saying, if God doesn't come through for me, with this thing, I'm done. Done. Wow. It's real. It's real. That's what makes these two narratives today that we're going to talk about common um, in our text today. That both of these people were, were in despair. And I believe that Mark places these two miracles together for a reason. So as we explore this passage today, there are several things I want you to see and experience. First, I want you to experience their stories. And then second, I want you to see the common ground that they shared together. And then third, I want to leave you with a practical understanding of the lessons that they leave behind for us today. So let's dive right in. Let's talk about their stories. Eric left off uh, where Jesus had gone across the lake or the sea to to, uh, to had an encounter with the demoniac of Gadira. So now he's passing back over from the Gadarene side of the lake where he had delivered the demoniac. Now he's back over on the west side at Capernaum. And he just steps off the boat. He just gets off the boat. And we're going to pick it up right there. Verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again, in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then, one, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she might be made well and live. And he went, he, Jesus, went with him, J. Iris. Yeah. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. 
Let me tell you a little bit about Jairus. Scripture tells us that Jairus was one of the rulers of the synagogue. And if you remember when we first started this book, I mentioned to you that a synagogue really was, was a place of worship. It's a place like we meet here on Sunday morning. It was a place of worship. This guy, Jairus, was in charge of the Sunday morning service, kind of much like what I do as a pastor here. So his duties included, you know, making sure of the order of the service, selecting who would lead the prayer. He was responsible often for conducting worship and the reading of the scriptures and even preaching and teaching of the scriptures. Jairus was a man of great stature in his community. He was well known and he was very well networked and he was very well respected. But listen, none of his networking skills, none of his prestigious uh, contacts, not one in his network of associates could help him with the dilemma that he faced. None of them. His 12-year-old daughter was dying. She was at the point of death. And so Jairus was desperate, and this is his story. Let's pick it up at verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, was no better but grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched the hem of his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. I'll tell you about this woman. The woman with the issue of blood was, she was hemorrhaging. Mark makes no distinction. I know this is going to be delicate, but you, I mean, I'm, I'm the pastor. I have to teach the scriptures, right? If I say amen, pastor. Amen. All right, all right. Mark makes no description of the bleeding, but it's believed by most historians and Bible scholars that it was uterine. And if that's the case, and this wasn't only just a debilitating disease, but it also rendered this woman religiously, ceremonially, and ritually unclean. If you read in the book of the law, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 15, beginning at verse 19, there's a description of what happens with a woman when she's on the flow of her monthly cycle. And then if you get down to verse 25 through 30, it lays out the purification process for women whose monthly flow extends beyond their cycle. The law required that she be separated from everyone. She was considered unclean. Everything she touched was considered unclean. Every person she touched was considered unclean. Everywhere she sat or lay was considered unclean. No one was allowed to be around her at all until seven days after her cycle had ended. Then on the eighth day, what she was required to do is take two two birds, either turtle doves or pigeons, or maybe a combination of the two, and she'd have to go to the priest who stood at the edge of the tent of meeting, and she would have to present these sacrifices to, uh, these sacrifice offerings to uh, the priest. And one was, a, was an offering for her sin, and the other was a burn offering for atonement of sin. And she would have to do this before she'd be allowed to go back into the community. Think about that. Twelve years 
of being totally isolated. 12 years living in this community as an outcast. 12 years being really, really sick, having spent all that she had and not gotten any better. We don't even know her name, but this is her story. These two people have three things in common, so I wanna, I wanna talk to you about their shared common ground. Here's the first thing. They had no control over their affliction. The woman with the, with the blood disorder, she had no control over this disease, and J. Iris could not stop the inevitable, and that was if his daughter wasn't healed, she was going to die. They had no control. So they couldn't control what they were going through. You know, some things that we're going through we don't ask for. Did you know that? There are some things that we go through that we can't control that we didn't ask for those things. I've been in situations where I've had to go through some things, even here as your pastor, I didn't ask for it. Somebody said, yes, you did. You signed up for it. You're the pastor. <laughs> no. Some things are just beyond our control. I want to give you a key statement here because I think sometimes people have this perception that when you give your life to Jesus Christ that, you know, you put on your rose-colored set of glasses and everything is rosy from then on. That's not the case. Did you know that just because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that we won't experience things that are beyond our control. Things that are beyond our control, family, happen. They happen all the time. They happen all the time. I was sitting on my couch yesterday, around 4.30 in the evening, I got a call from a good friend of mine who helped me lead the men's summit this past weekend. And he called me, and I thought it was kind of odd because he's never called me on a Saturday. And I know that he's out of town. And so I picked up the phone and I said, I said, Dave, what's going on? He said, Greg, he said, um, Chip Gallagher is gone. I said, what? He said, Chip died of a massive heart attack. Now let me give you the story behind this and why it's so visceral for me and a lot of men in this room. Because Chip spent last weekend with us, talking to us about the inevitability of death, sharing with us his story, and standing in front of a casket making this statement, you never know when you will draw your last breath. Didn't he, guys? You never know. Life is precious, so focus on the things that are most important. I'll, I will never, I will never forget that moment. It is seared in my brain. Chip is in Ecuador. He flew down to Ecuador because his daughter is getting married this coming weekend. And he was walking up an incline, had a massive heart attack, and died on the spot, and they couldn't revive him. Do you think for a moment that that's a circumstance that his family wanted to endure and are still enduring right now? It's beyond their control. Things happen, family, beyond our control. 
The Bible says that, that God reigns on the just as well as the unjust. And there are things that we are going to have to go through as the body of Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ, that are beyond our control. But let me tell you something. Anything that we have to go through with Jesus is easier than it is without him. Anything that we have to go through with each other is easier than it is without him, without each other. And I'll tell you this, I, you know, I, I'm going to miss Chip. I love Chip, but you know what? I, we haven't lost Chip. I know exactly where Chip is right now. And that's our hope that we will see him again. What's my point? Things happen to everyone in this world that we live in both good and bad, sometimes we have no control. Here's the second point. These two had no other options. When every option is taken from us, we become desperate. And so in their desperation, in their despair, they came to Jesus. And look what happened. Jairus came to Jesus and he kneeled before him. He came to him and asked him, will you come to my house and heal my daughter? And Jesus went with him. I love what Luke says about this. He says, the crowd was huge as Jesus diverted and began to walk with J. Iris. Luke uses the word um, to describe the crowd as as choking, as stifling, as Jesus was walking, the crowd was stifling him. And I can see J. Iris with his sense of urgency as this crowd had become so dense around Jesus, pressing the crowd, because remember, his daughter is dying, man. He's trying to get through the crowd. And so he's pressing the crowd. He's like, he's like, please excuse me. Listen, I've got somewhere to be. Please leave the Savior alone. Please leave the teacher alone. Please will you let me by? I got to get to my place. And so he's moving forward in this dense crowd and right behind him is this woman who's coming up from behind. And, and, and she's moving into the crowd too and her purpose is the same. She's desperate and she just wants to touch Jesus so her life can change. Hmm. See, she had been told that this disease was going to kill her. And remember, remember, this was risky for her family. It was risky for her to make her way through to Jesus because remember, she has to touch people on the way to Jesus, which means that she's breaking the law. She's breaking the law. But both of them were scared and they both were out of options. Did you know that there are times when no matter how much in despair we are, we have to press through to get to Jesus. Did you know that there are times that no, no, it doesn't matter how, how difficult the circumstances is, or if, if I can just press through the despair that I'm in and keep my eyes focused on Jesus, if I can just, if I can just get to him in spite of what people say, in spite of what's going on around me, if I can just get to Jesus, I believe my situation can change. And so to that, they were still hopeful. J. Iris, come lay your hand on my daughter and I know that she'll be well. And the woman, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I know that I'll be made well. Huh. 
She's hoping that she can touch Jesus and get away with it. She's hoping that she could touch Jesus without anybody noticing it and she can get away clean. But it doesn't happen, does it? Look at verse 29. Let's go back up to 28, actually. For she said, if I, even, if I touch even the hem of his garment, or even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, everybody say immediately. Immediately. And I told you, Mark likes that word. Immediately, right now, the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And then Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched me? And his disciples said, you see the crowd pressing around you, yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Watch this down. So Jesus is walking. The crowd is dense. The woman comes up from behind, touches his garment, turns to run away. And Jesus stops and goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Now imagine this whole crowd, the buzz around Jesus, like, stop it, hold it, stop. Stop it. Stop it. Who touched me? Who, who touched me? Who touched me? Who, who touched me? And his disciples say, hey man, Jesus, don't know if you got the message, but there are a whole lot of people around you touching me right now. He's like, uh-uh, uh-uh, I'm not trying to hear that. Who touched me? Who? Who? Because he knew in that moment that that touch wasn't just a touch. See, other people were handling Jesus. This was a touch to get to him because this person had something that she needed Jesus to do for her. So she touches him and Jesus immediately feels the virtue leave out of him. Let me tell you something, man. There's nothing that we go through that if we just don't, if we just touch the hem of his garment that Jesus can't take care of for us. Nothing. So she touches him. And Jesus tells her, he says, daughter. Actually, she falls down on her knees and Jesus confronts her. She says it was me and she tells him the truth. And Jesus makes a statement to her that I think is profound. It speaks to his deity. He says, first to her, he calls her daughter, which is her identity. He's identifying with her. He's, 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 he's speaking to her with a term of intimacy that she probably hasn't heard for 12 years. He calls her daughter. So he, he, restore, he, he confirms her identity and then he restores her dignity. Your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. Go in peace. Hmm. This too speaks to the deity of Jesus. I'll say it again. Did you know that no matter what you're going through, no matter how broken it is, no matter how diseased it may be, Jesus wants to restore it today? He wants to restore it. So then the narrative switched back to Jairus. Jairus is about to see that Jesus has not only authority over disease, but also over death and despair. 
I'm not going to read this last part, but I want to I want to I want to pull out several things that jump out to me from verses 35 through 43. First, I get the impression that the servants of Jairus were really keen about Jesus coming to their house or them or or Jairus going to Jesus. And I think Mark indicates by the way that they're talking about how the girl had died, that they were really being sarcastic about Jesus. That they were saying, why really bother with, with Jesus? Why bother with this guy? And I think this truth shows up when Jesus gets to Jairus' house. I'm getting a check in my spirit, so I believe I need to read it. Drop down to verse 35. Are you with me? And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what Jesus, what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw the commotion of the people weeping and wailing loudly. Did you know that in Jewish culture, they would hire professional mourners for the funeral dirge? And so what would happen is they would hire these mourners, mourners, and so the family could really lament and grieve professionally. Wow. Wow. So Jesus enters in and he says, why are you making this commotion? Why are you weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. King James says they laughed him to scorn. But then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Then taking her by the hand, she said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Several things jump out to me about this. When J.R. receives the message that that his daughter is dead, he doesn't lose faith. Nor does he let Jesus off the hook. He doesn't say to Jesus, well, you know, Jay, she's dead now. You know, you can go ahead and go. He doesn't, he doesn't make excuses um, for where he's at. He doesn't do anything but, but continue to press into the fact that he believes that Jesus has the answer to his problem. And then I love the fact that when Jesus got to Jairus' house, that all the doubters in the room had to go. Do you know that there are times in your faith where you've got to make room for your faith by clearing out all those who doubt around you? And that's what Jesus does. And that's key. Because our faith is going to always be tested, family. The enemy is going to use whatever he can to test our faith. And if he can keep us 
to where we're despairing, but we're not desperate for Jesus, we'll never hit that place where we'll be totally dependent on him. Hmm. And so to wrap this up, here are some of the common compelling lessons that I think are screaming from us from this text. And I think in these two narratives, we should be able to see ourselves in these narratives. I love what Dr. Crawford Luritz says about this passage. And he speaks to faith. He says this, he says, it's not the strength of our faith that delivers us, but the faith in a strong savior. See, people get all excited about the faith. Oh, the woman's faith made her whole. No, the woman's faith in a strong savior made her whole. And so here are some things that that are lessons for us to learn from this passage today. Your faith will grow in proportion to your desperation. So how desperate are you for Jesus? Inadequacy and suffering keep us from pressing into relationship with Jesus like nothing else can. You'll never know the depth of your faith until you've been in a good fight. And you'll never know that Jesus can deliver you from the worst until you're in the pit of despair. And those times pressing into Jesus can increase our faith like nothing else. We're all plagued with, with the disease of sin, and we know that sin ultimately leads to death in this world. And when I think about this point, I think about Chip. You know, we never know when our time is. We never know when the last time we will have to look a loved one in the face, tell them about Jesus. We don't know when the last opportunity is before us to tell that neighbor or that coworker about Jesus. We never know. We do know this, that is appointed unto every one of us to die. And we don't know when that time is. And so we need to treat each day as if, as, if, as if it's our last with a sense of urgency because we don't have time to waste. Jesus wants to speak life into our dead circumstances and bring healing to our brokenness. And there is no person or circumstance beyond the reach and concern of our Savior. Jesus broke the rules with this narrative today. It was against the law for him to touch anyone that was unclean. It was against the law for him to handle a corpse of a dead person, but he didn't care. No one was beyond the reach of our Savior. So I want to close by asking you several questions. If this woman so feared the consequences of defiling Jesus by touching him that she remained petrified and failed to move toward him in her desperation. What would have happened? How would the story have been different? What about us? What about us? If we feel that the consequence that we're in is so grave that in our desperation we fail to reach out to Jesus. How does our story end? And what if Jairus had decided it was too risky to go to Jesus in broad daylight, 
fearing the open rebuke and certain persecution from the religious leaders around him who hated Jesus, how would his story have been different? Think his daughter would have been raised from the dead? What dead relationships do you have that you need to trust and depend on Jesus and, and, and walk with him all the way and watch him resurrect that relationship in your life? We're talking about two supernatural things in this story, in this narrative today. And I'll tell you what's been weighing heavy on my heart and in my spirit. I think God wants this to be a supernatural church where we experience the supernatural. Yes, he does. I believe God wants us to be a church where we experience the Holy Spirit in his presence in a manifest way where sickness and disease are cured right in our midst. Amen. Where broken relationships are mended right in our midst. Where people who come and can't walk, the lame, end up walking when they leave. I believe that this narrative can be a template for how God wants to live wants us to live our life as this church, LifeSpring. I believe God wants to do supernatural miracles here in this place. Do you believe that? Yes. Then we have to be desperate for it. We're living in a time where, where we should be desperate to see God move in that way. You know why? Because he can and because he wants to. And I believe he wants to do it through us. Why don't you stand with me?